Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby and today, where does money start from and how does it start change as we start to deal with more transactions and then start to trade with foreign currencies? Today, for fun, what if Robinson Crusoe was stranded on an island for so long that he decided to invent his own currency? We're going to play a game of hypotheticals with Steve today to try and understand the role of money better right from the very beginning. That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Now, Jeffrey Robinson, the Aussie human rights barrister uh, who these days lives in London, did a great series of shows on TV called Hypotheticals, where he asked notable guests what they would do in various situations. And he added to the scenario uh, with increasingly complex or very often ridiculous circumstances that would change the decisions that uh, people would make, often very ethical decisions. So I thought we could do that today with Steve. Less a question of ethics, more an opportunity to track the development of money. And look, Steve, we're going to start with Robinson Crusoe. On an island with Man Friday, uh, supposedly cut off from uh, from from the rest of society. I've always wondered about this. Why would Man Friday, in the first place, be subservient to Robinson Crusoe? I mean, presumably, you know, Man Friday uh, is more muscular. He's been looking after himself. Robinson Crusoe, uh, you know, comes from uh, comes from the West. Uh, he's been mollycoddled. Why would Man Friday work for him? Why wouldn't he say, "Well, excuse me, I'm the boss here." Well, I think I'll soften because Robin Crusoe is the one holding the muskets. Right. Just weapons, basically. Just weapons. But, uh, yeah. yeah. But and, he has to and, sleep. <laughs> and, and, and also, I mean, there's, that's actually one wonderful comment by Arthur C. Clarke, which gives a good background as to why this actually tends to happen when you have a, uh, an, a, a isolated community suddenly confronted with the technology of another. And that was Clarke's comment that so the technology of any sufficiently advanced um, culture to ours will appear as magic, right? And if you imagine, if you literally, literally if you, you just imagine the, the genuine confrontations that occurred when it wasn't, uh, you know, some uh, some interesting English fiction uh, like Crusoe, but it was actually Cortez turning up yeah. on the shore, and the boats, the, the boats of you know, quite well armed boats turn up with spears and arrows, and suddenly find that when they're twice as far away as the range of an arrow, they're all starting to fall over from little lead bullets hitting them, like, and, and when there's a flash of light at one end, there's somebody dies at their end, magic. Mm. And at that point, you, do, you don't regard yourself as equal to them anymore. You fall into believing they're gods. Maybe this- and, in fact, that, that, in fact, was part of what happened with Montezuma because the part of their, unfortunately, for the, for the, uh, as far as I understand, any, any Mexicans, please correct me, but uh, as I understand, part of the mythology of the Aztecs was the arrival of a white god. Right, and I guess that's why we have this uh, this fixation with uh, with science fiction and uh, aliens taking over because uh, with with far greater technology because that's all we can perceive because we've done everything we, we possibly we've can. We've done it ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got, it might be a guilt. One of those. You know, what, what do you call those things when you have a, a reverse psychology coming back at you and it's um, mm. 
Yeah, well, it's guilt. I mean, you, you almost said guilt. Your own guilt. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. So look, and we've got Robinson Crusoe and Man Friday. However, that relationships develop, they're you know they're happily making shelter, uh, catching food, cooking it, and uh, and uh, living in loincloths uh, in the sunshine. All sounds very idyllic. But then we find Woman Saturday. <laughs> Uh, who also is going to do work. She's going to make clothes. She's going to do the cooking because these are obviously the dark ages for women's liberation. So how, the hook there. Good, yeah. how do we decide then who gets what between uh, Woman Saturday and Man Friday? Robinson Crusoe might then say, look, I'm going to introduce this concept of money as an incentive for you to work hard. The harder you work, the more money you get. And then you can spend that money on, uh, you can buy a day off or you can buy more food. You can eat more than the other one. You can get access to my solar powered radio so you can listen to the BBC World Service and find out what's going on in the world. Uh, Uh, I'm not going to even follow up on that one. How how does that change behavior though? Because in theory, both of them are going to work harder if I introduce money, aren't they? Well, that's that's the argument. Uh, the, the in essentially what you put forward is the um, simplified story that modern monetary theory puts about the origin of money itself, which is to say that the state, and we've established the Robinson Crusoe is the state because he's got the muskets, yep. uh, imposes a monetary system to uh, motivate uh, the rather than the subsistence behaviour, motivate uh, production for the state's needs. And out of that, you get the development of money, which then enables a capitalist economy to evolve, which uses money and credit. So that's uh, that's often the uh, one way in which it's put across that money came into existence. And this is back to the historical record. Now we're, you know, I far prefer working in history to fantasy. If you want fantasy, call a neoclassical economist. Uh, but, <laughs> well, uh, the, the neoclassical economist is going to love this episode then because it's pure fantasy. But I'm just, that's just indeed, using, that's indeed, I'm yeah, using yeah. it as an excuse for you to give me the history lesson. <laughs> well, the history seems to be, and this is, it's actually quite intriguing. More recent anthropology is making the picture uh, more clouded again. Money has evolved in all sorts of ways in different societies around the world. Sometimes, yes, it was a straight case of the state imposing money. One of the best examples there, and I, I don't, don't know it uh, as well as I'd like to, but the, the Professor Christine Desard at Harvard University Law School has done work on the evolution of monetary systems in post-Roman Britain. And there's one particular instance where a king, of course, there were many kings in England at that stage. So basically, the guy with the biggest army was the king, whatever region you're talking about. Um, somewhere located in England, let's say it was in Surrey, uh, invented a form of credit, which was pretty much, I think, that we maybe need the tally sticks or the precursor to tally sticks uh, to enable taxation and and also uh, to enable commerce. And what happened was what had been a fairly um, primitive subsistence economy with only minor amounts of trade occurring very rapidly became a commercial economy with a dramatic increase in productivity. Mm. So uh, in that case, the state... Because of money. The, yeah, yeah the, state, the state effectively provided the money in that case. In other cases, there are points where uh, it was a, a form of... You know, again, I'm paraphrasing what I've read in anthropological research, but uh, something that evolved more in a private system, a sort of a landlord uh, landlord approach, uh, where landlords would use uh, forms of credit to require land, you know, landless labourers to work on their land or to, be, you know, to, to take over small 
smallholders and things like that. And, and also often it re- revolved out of the religious institutions. So if you think about the original human societies, which maxed out at about 150 people, according to a fabulous piece of research called the Dunbar number, uh, about 150 was all we could keep in our heads and keep a relationship with 150 different people and the relation they each had with each other. That's the limit of our brain power. Mm. And um, in those societies, it was a mutual gift situation. So, you know, I'd gift you a, you know, let's say I was a good manufacturer. I'd gift you a little road microphone and you'd gift me back a tennis racket, et cetera, et cetera. And it was all gifting and therefore a gift as well as a gift being a giving to you, it also made you in a form of debt with the person who gave you that, and there's always this mutual reciprocal exchanges. Right. When you when you had the development of um, larger than 150 people groups, which largely involved hierarchy, and that's the word I want to come back to, uh, a form of hierarchy to make it possible to interact with only 150 people yourself, but to be part of a society which might be 10 times or 100 times that size. As they started to evolve, the responsibility of keeping track of these inter- interpersonal obligations started to devolve towards the witch doctors, the, the, basically, the, in that case, the, the, the priests of those early societies. And then when the, when the um, priesthood became itself institutionalised in a religious institution, that was the one that, uh, that kept the records. It also was a commercial uh, venture as well. And uh, with the combination of the two, you you had the formation of, a, of the state coming out of a religious system. So, so there's no need for record keeping in, in this scenario, though, because it's Robinson Crusoe, Man Friday and Woman Saturday. And I've introduced money and the money uh, or he has, I should say. Oh, well, look, I'm going to be Robinson Crusoe just to make it easy. So I've, in, so I've introduced money and the money I've introduced is just the coins that I managed to take off the ship. So I've got a finite supply of them. Uh, so the money supply is not changing at all. But he's making everyone work harder because they want to get their their bit of that money and then i'm getting it back again because they're they're paying for stuff like the food for example that they're making for themselves now woman saturday realizes that there's something she can provide that both me as robinson crusoe and man friday want that we can't provide ourselves i mean she's a woman so she starts uh, these are very primitive times she starts charging for sex she realizes she can charge a lot for it Mate, we're going totally off the politically correct scale here. But anyway, lead down the track. Well, you know, this is because this is, I mean, it's hypothetical. You know, not saying it's good or right. We're not making a judgment. We're just okay. saying she realises she can... I'm just ch- enjoy just been celebrating gay pride here week in Amsterdam, by the way. Well, so. there we are. So man for, maybe Man Friday could have charged as well. But in this scenario... Yeah, of course. Yeah, they're it, getting slightly... In, the, in this scenario, you can't charge as much as uh, Woman Saturday. So she starts charges, charging. She charges a lot. And as a result, she gets most of the food. She gets total access to, uh, to, to this radio, uh, that, uh, you know, she, the only form of entertainment we've got. How can we stop her dominating the economy so much now? Do I, do I, I mean, do I, as Robinson Crusoe, have to form a monopolies commission? What do I do to control this imbalance? Uh, okay. Well, th- that, that is an interesting scenario because what you've got effectively is hoarding going on. You said you've got a fixed supply of money. Yep. You said there's one one of the three parties that is accumulating most of that money in her account and the other two are going down. So we, we, we have uh, Crusoe Friday and Saturday. Those are our three bank accounts. There's a fixed amount of money circulating. So effectively, they're, each, they're storing their own accounts in the physical coin, but that's circulating. One of them is accumulating more and more of it to, 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 uh, to get more power. Uh, but by accumulating, you spend, you, you, one way you accumulate is you, you either charge more for what you get or, or you spend less or a bit of both. You're talking about, by the sounds of it, a bit of both. And what happens is you slow down the rate at which that money turns over and the GDP of the economy actually starts to fall. Mm. 
So what do I do about that then? Do I form? Do I do I start saying, well, look, I'm going to put I'm going to put the maximum price on services. Do I start to uh, to offer sort of controls like that into the economy? Hoarding is one of those things which people think is good for themselves, and therefore they extrapolate it must be good for the whole society. This is what Schäuble was doing fundamentally with the eurozone by saying that if we uh, spend less and we accumulate a surplus, that's fantastic. The trouble is, if you all try to do it, nobody can accumulate more coins than currently exist. You've got a fixed supply of the coins. All that happens is the coins turn ever more slowly, and your GDP, which is what you're trying to increase, actually falls. So it's counterproductive thinking, typical uh, thinking about an individual part of the system and not the entire system itself. So if you want to actually solve it, the simplest way to do it is to put uh, a demurrage on the coins themselves. You have the coins devaluing the longer they stay inside somebody's possession. So you label it, label them all, and uh, you keep some sort of time record of how long they're staying in one spot. And the longer they stay in one spot, the less they're worth until they're used to buy something off somebody else. Mm, sounds very complicated, doesn't it? Given that, you know, such a primitive economy. But look, I've also got the problem now that Man Friday has discovered uh, in the stream nearby where we're living that there's gold in the stream, quite a lot of it. Mm. And he and I, because uh, remember, I'm Robinson Crusoe, we managed to melt it down to make coins, quite a lot of them. Uh, so all of a sudden, I don't have that problem that we, of hoarding anymore because there's so many more coins. So what happens ne- next? I mean, how do I? I guess the the issue is, I mean, this could create inflation, couldn't it? That we're going to need more and more of those coins to buy the basic things that we were buying before. Well, you haven't got much of a production system going here so far. You've got three commodities by the sound of it. You haven't identified two of those commodities are out of the three. <clears throat> so um, you've now got a big problem if you're trying to you're starting to confuse your monetary system with your production system. Mm. And that's a recipe for the sort of nonsense we're experiencing today. So, um, you know, who's making what that's needed by each that the money is part of the uh, your way of purchasing. What, what's 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 your production economy there? Who's making what? A woman for a Saturday is making love. Uh, <laughs> Man Friday is going out and catching all the fish. And uh, well, I guess I'm the central banker now. All of, all of a sudden, because money has become such a an important part of the economy. I'm, 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 this is where I come from. Obviously, before I was. Uh, I worked in the city before. You're a central I, banker who managed I'm, to avoid the flood. Y- yeah, so uh, exactly. So you know, so I'm dealing with the money. That you're right. That's all. That's all we've got going for us, basically. But we are looking after Maslow's hierarchy of needs, pretty much, at least the very bottom level of that, aren't we? We're, uh-huh. uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, we're getting our needs satisfied. <laughs> but I mean, it's, so do we need more money? I mean, I mean how do we get well, that? This, this, this is part of the problem again about how one thinks about a monetary system, because the emphasis on sound money, which is the ideology that's began back in the uh, sort of 1800s in Britain and still dominates how politicians think about it today, really is about managing your money and using it frugally and carefully. That's the secret for growth. But in fact, a growing economy almost without fail, it's very, very hard to find any instances of an economy in history which has grown without a growing supply of money at the same time. Mm. So if you don't have the nominal system growing, the real doesn't grow either. And that's because fundamentally a way – one of the ironic things about the words that economists use is that nominal is real and real is nominal because when you say nominal, you say actually this is the dollar price I'm paying for something. It's actually a, you know, a, a set quantity that you're using We actually can nail down, the number of dollars, the number of coins, whatever else. When we talk about real, to produce the concept of real, we have to deflate that um, – total nominal by some index process so that in that sense the real is a fiction that we derive by 
indexing and changing it. But nonetheless, when you measure what is the scale of physical output of this economy, uh, then that only tends to grow when the monetary system is enabling. <coughs> pardon me. The monetary system enabling the purchases of those products is itself growing. Right. So the big question becomes: How do you make the money supply grow reliably? Now, your situation at the moment is digging up little bits of yellow rock and uh, melting them down and making them into similes that the coins you stole from the Bank of England when it went down, went under during the flood, you managed to escape from. Exactly. That is exactly what I'm doing, and we're not producing any more. But then, look, there's another development, because uh, all of a sudden, onto the beach floods a whole load of people who come from a village on the other side of the island. They've spent years cutting a path through the centre of the island, and then finally they find us on this beach. Uh, they, they've been surviving on bartering. There's a couple of hundred of them, and they do all sorts of stuff. They make all sorts of... Uh, interesting clothes and you know that particularly the clothes they've got uh, all sorts of food they have far more interesting diet than uh, we've got on our side of the island they've built some pretty nice houses as well and um, so i think well look this is all good i'm going to introduce them to this gold money i i really am making myself this new central banker now so uh, was that a smart move on my part and and how do i keep all this money in order I think we've actually jumped from, from Robinson Crusoe to Star Trek here because you wouldn't get a society that sophisticated based on barter in the first place. Well, I mean, they somehow have managed. I mean, I'm, no, may, well, maybe, be, maybe they have some sort of rudimentary money, well, money maybe, system. Maybe the 150 people, they're, they're, they're just a, um, um, they were a, a, a typical hunter-gatherer society at the time, with the with the richness of products they can pull out of the, the out of the plants, but they've got no actual agriculture. Yeah. So, if you're going to have any way to impact on this society, uh, it isn't money you're going to need so much because they'd have their own system of customary trust, and they'd wonder why the hell you're bothering with these little beads, unless you were. Uh, you know, no, they like them. So, I mean, what what's actually uh, happening is the the village elder is keeping a record of uh, you know who owes what to who. Um, you know, pretty pretty much as you were describing, you know, the work yeah. of the work of priests. But they like my coins. You know, they, they like they shine in the daylight. They, you know, they they and I explain to them, you know, by changing hands. I even convince them that the you know what it's done for us. It's actually made us more productive because uh, everyone's fighting to get more and more of these gold coins, and they like that idea. So I've sold them on it. They've they, they've bought it. Then we've got this unified currency across the island now. Mm-hmm. Or you might actually have yourself becoming a religious leader at this stage. <laughs> well, that sounds good. Well, because they're, cause they're clearly by anything. They'll, they'll be convinced of anything. Is that the argument? Well, yeah. <laughs> Presumably, though, it, it, injecting money into what's sort of like a you know reasonably developed uh, um, economy is, is going to help production even more so, isn't it? Just as, just as you explained it did when there was just the three of us. Well, it could give them, like if you've got a society of 150 people and you're talking a typical hunter-gatherer society that's uh, right. wandered into your little beach, um, then that society is small enough that people keep track themselves, but you're getting to the point where maybe the religious uh, leader in the group uh, is more inclined to hold the, hold the details of who owes what. He's the arbiter. He or she is the arbiter of who, who owes who, what to whom. If it ever comes to a dispute, you're going to convince that person to use these little tokens you've got to keep track of these things. And rather than having to uh, keep it in his or her mind, they can have little piles of metal that they use to indicate who owes what. And this indeed is what seems to be the case with early Sumerian society because we all know of the cuneiforms, um, with the, the cuneiform tablets, which were used as a form of writing those strange little wedges on the outside. 
it turns out that before those evolved, there were little um, clay containers, which inside those clay containers would have little uh, models of a cow, a sheep, a goat, uh, some wheat, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and that was actually the way these records were stored by putting them inside clay containers and just made little things out of clay, which signified, uh, in that sense, that it was the fact that they signified an obligation rather than being um, a, a, a point exchange, a barter exchange. They signified an obligation, and that was the form of credit. And the language apparently evolved, the writing language of Sumerian uh, civilization evolved out of realising that rather than putting the objects inside the clay uh, container, they could put marks on the surface of the clay container, which were easier to look at and keep a record of. And, and then that's where cuneiforms evolved from. Mm. So in that sense, what you're saying is forget about a little, uh, you've rather, rather than you, you, because you've got gold already, you've, you know, you've landed in from the 19th century or thereabouts. Um, you've said, well, let, you know, we can jump over the clay tablets, just use the little pieces of gold yeah. as the same way of, of forming a, a credit relation, which will enable you to have a much more complicated society so you can start uh, bickering at each other more effectively. Well, I mean, and one of the things we'll bicker about, obviously, is how much tax everyone pays because you've got to maintain that path that's built between the two sides of the island and there's a few other, obviously, community services we've got to provide. But the, the other problem I'm now facing is that the other villagers on the other side of the island work very hard. They make nicer food. Uh, we, you know, people are prepared to pay more. They're not really too much interested in anything Man Friday or Woman Saturday produces. M- much more attractive women on their side of the island as well. Uh, and so uh, they're making more money than Man Friday or Woman Saturday. Uh, and some of them decide that, you know, this side of the island is the better side of the island. So they give Man Friday and Woman Saturday a bit of money uh, to buy their huts right on the beach in the shade with a nice cool breeze. Uh, so Man Friday and Woman Saturday lose where they were living. They haven't got too much money. Uh, and they're starting to think, you know, this money thing isn't a good idea after all. We seem to be coming off worse out of all of this. That does tend to happen, doesn't it? We, and this is one thing which is forgotten in economic theory, and it annoys me when I talk, particularly to Austrian economists who don't uh, take this into account. You haven't got the first, you haven't got the, the, the uh, son and daughter of Man Friday and, and Woman Saturday yet. Yeah. But uh, what we tend to have is that we inherit the position that the previous generation had. And when you talk about the, the, how free trade works really well and uh, – and it's fair, et cetera, et cetera. It's only fair in the context of a zero-generational society because if in the next generation you inherit the wealth that your all the poverty that your, uh, your 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 family had, you're starting behind the eight ball. It's not fair. And yet, I haven't. I've yet to see any Austrian economists support something like a hundred percent wealth tax, uh, which is the only way to maintain that idea that what you actually end up with at the end of your life is a product of how, how you manage your, 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 your life during it rather than who is your mammy and who is your daddy. Yeah. So man Friday and woman Saturday, uh, obviously there will be children because, uh, we've already established, uh, hair profession. Um, and <laughs> so there's probably going to be lots of, if them. I get, if I get, if I get ribs on this thing, mate, you're paying for it anyway. <laughs> uh, she's, I mean, then, you know, they are going to be very poor because they, you know, as you say, because they're not inheriting any wealth, whereas all the villagers are on the other side. Look, the villagers have decided now they don't like my currency very much because I've got all the control. So they start their own 
cryptocurrency. I'm not quite sure what they're making it out of. It's not gold, but they've, they've found something else. So how do we determine, you know, what their currency is worth now versus the currency we've got on our side of the island? We've got this exchange control problem now. We know they're producing a lot more than we are, but you know, maybe there's one, but we know also we're on a nice side of the island. So they want to, you know, they want to buy land on our side of the island, I guess. So how do we determine, you know, what the exchange rate is between our two currencies? Well, it sounds like you're starting to get a, a bit of the um, situation I'm finding myself with modern monetary theory right now, having a dispute about their analysis of trade, because what you were effectively doing beforehand was saying we can just use our little bits of uh, effectively paper, you know, your little pieces of gold uh, as a way of giving stuff in one direction and getting back what they produce on the other side, because quote unquote, imports are a benefit and exports are a cost. Um but now you're getting into my end of the spectrum where I'm saying, well, you're, you're giving away so many of your paper rights. You've sold the huts that are necessary to finance that, that gap um, and, and you don't have any assets anymore. Mm. So in that case, your currency is likely to plunge against the value of the, of the uh, village currency, become worthless. Even though, it's, even though it's gold, they don't care. They don't know what gold is. They're just saying, yes, our, our currency is worth more. All yeah. right, so I'm pretty screwed. Well, our, our economy you know, generates more than your economy does. We've got a, a stronger industrial base, dare I, dare I use the word. Yeah. So, okay, so this is like uh, where we start saying, yes, yeah, so the balance of trade is very important for the value of your currency. And that's that's the perspective I want to analyse because it's, uh, I mean, you know, modern monetary theory and, and, and I share the common foundation of saying you've got to look at monetary flows. Every, every, every monetary flow starts somewhere and ends somewhere. And therefore, you see the impact of, uh, of uh, taxes um, as taking money that's been created by the government out of its own spending, uh, it, you know, government spending being a net benefit without being imposing a cost on the, on the person who receives the money, private banks giving you money but giving you debt at the same time, so no increase in your net financial assets, et cetera, et cetera. And then we bring in the issue of trade. And if you have the type of system you're talking about, um, then you can only continue using a little pieces of gold as a way of getting the resources from the other side uh, if if your gold continues to be valued as you'd like it to be valued. But if you're not the dominant currency on the planet, and this particular case it sounds like you're not the dominant currency on your island, mm. then I think your currency is going to plunge at some stage and what you can buy is going to decline. Unless you start producing something, your economy is going to tank. Yeah, well, there's the problem. You see, we produce very little. As you say, the assets we've got can be bought uh, on the other side of the island. They're, they're, they're very productive. So that explains all of that but by as chance would have it man friday builds a boat and he discovers half an hour away there is an inhabited island and as luck would have it it's a tax haven filled with big international banks and he mentions gold and uh, they want to buy it they want to buy our coins and they say we're going to give you us dollars for it and we go well that's uh, that's fine so we get all these us dollars coming in rather than gold and we start using that as uh, as our our currency and then we find we can buy all sorts of things with these these these, U, these us dollars you can buy televisions and ipads and pre-packaged food um stuff that we could sell to workers on the other side of the island but um, they're not going to be able to afford them are they because or, or do i just sell them cheaply to them what uh, you know because i'm still sort of cut off from the rest of the world i'm really just trading with this this one island that's giving me all these US dollars, what do I do now? 
It sounds like you're researching a science fiction script here. Um, <laughs> it's coming. I like it. it's coming out with a few interesting <laughs> theories, though. You, you know, it's mm-hmm. helping explain why you're not convinced. Well, I'm learning a bit from you on this. Mm, well, I'm still wondering. You know, when you're buying, the, so you'll get the you'll get the gold you can sell for the dollars, you can, then you get the dollars, and you want to uh, <laughs> you can buy all these fancy products that are coming from the the other island. And so, what you're going to try to do is use envy to get the yes. people on the other side with the with the positive uh, with the productive monetary and physical system those productive to, bastards on the other side of the island that have screwed yeah. our economy we want to get it, back at them absolutely yeah. okay so they they they're not going to want the dollars you've got and to get the dollars they might buy the gold so your gold's going to rise in value and your currency will therefore be able to buy more stuff from their side of the island as well as buying the ipads but by this stage you've probably introduced uh, the same sort of dilemmas shown in that wonderful south african movie the gods must be crazy uh, where when you throw an object which which is which cannot be reproduced uh, and is in limited supply into a society where there was no such concept of of things which could be in limited supply compared to the population, uh, you start causing social breakdown. So I imagine at this stage you've got a good increasing murder rate. Uh, they're buying guns to shoot each other and hopefully also <laughs> shoot you. Uh, yeah. So the money's not been good for us, has it, really? We would have been better off. Uh, the, the, the problem seems to have started when we introduced money. Well, I think this is one of the, again, one of my perspectives on human society in general, that if you just simply even land in an aeroplane, you've got to admire the quality of human engineering and what we've managed to achieve in terms of physical systems of incredible complexity that uh, give us a, a level of, the status of energy consumption at the level of, of, of how we all consume uh, to have a pleasant life these days that is would be the right would even going back one or two centuries would be rather what kings or queens uh, had as, as, as their wealth at the time uh, so it's in, incredible how what we've done with that technology the one thing we've completely stuffed up is the monetary system mm. we've never understood how to make it work properly uh, we always misunderstand how it functions in the first place and most of our disasters come out of it and that's one one of my my favourite lines in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was where uh, Douglas Adams explained that there's a little planet where everybody's very unhappy and they're always trying to work it out and, and always the solutions involve the movement of little pieces, little green pieces of paper, yeah. which is strange really because on the whole it was, wasn't little piece, green pieces of paper. That were they were unhappy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they still were more concerned about how they could move that, uh, those bits of paper around more quickly. On, mm. our, on our island, uh, you know, I guess that, you know, because they are now connected to the outside world, uh, even the people on the productive side of the island are going to find, uh, ultimately, people on the mainland can do a lot of their work cheaper, uh, you know, because they're going to use uh, mechanization. All they can do is is sell the uh, the raw materials on the island. They're not going to survive too well, are they? This tends to be the problem. That's why I think you, you have to, if you're going to have a theory of economics, it can't just be about money, though, of course, it has to understand money properly. It's also got to be about how you grow your physical capabilities over time. And you, I presume you're back in a world where global warming doesn't matter um, in your little hypothetical universe. Uh, so in that world, uh, you grow your productivity by increasing the amount of energy you can harness to produce output, yeah. which industrialization lets you do. And if you have an industrialized society coming up against a non-industrialized society, the non-industrialized society can't produce anything as elaborate uh, or as energy transforming as the uh, as the advanced society does and it becomes a backwater. Well, presumably, if, the, if they hadn't made that connection with the uh, with the outside world, 
and money was uh, being used to increase productivity uh, or, or consumption, then you would hit the, the point at some point where resources would run out, where resources would run dry. Certainly on a small island that can happen. I mean, that's the classic case of that is Nauru, which was, uh, was made, which, its wealth was literally the result of bird droppings. And you had an enormous amount of phosphate on that island, which was then mined for uh, for um, fertiliser around the rest of the world in particular and made Nauru quite wealthy. At one stage, one of the biggest buildings in Melbourne was Nauru House. And the idea was that the island was going to manage these resources uh, well by turning the, turning the bird shit into money, putting the money in accounts and managing it well for the population. And unfortunately, I think they got caught up in a couple of Ponzi schemes and, and property bubbles and share price bubbles and collapses and wiped out most of the money. And that's why that poor country is now um, home to Australia's leading refugee prison, uh, which, which uh, along with Manus Island and now, Manus Island and Nauru became prisons for the Australian population to put people who are trying to get there uh, as, as refugees from the rest of the world. So, yeah, it ends up being pretty lousy when you run out of your resources. I'm not quite sure what we've learned from this from this episode, but actually, you know, there is a, there is an interesting comparison, which is uh, uh, the uh, the Clunas Ross family and uh, the uh, Cocos Keeling Islands off the west coast of uh, of, of Australia. Uh, the Clunas Ross family um, took over the island, and uh, this is about the time of Queen Victoria. And um, they had supplies; the natives there had supplies of jute, so they used to mine uh, uh, or forest jute and uh, and export it. And uh, John Clunas Ross basically paid the workers in a currency that he created, which could only be spent in the shop which which he ran. So he was for a while running his own uh, economy but he had an input you know because he had all the exports so he had money coming into the into the economy mm. um but uh it, it carried on that way until the united nations actually ruled that that wasn't the way to run a country and uh, and it was handed over to ultimately the island was bought was sold to australia which is why it became part of the australian territory so it's an interesting case study there of an isolated economy yeah, and that's, that's, that's one worth exploring. And what you get is a class system. And this is what is also left out of most thinking about money. Money When you, you have the idea of the barter economy and so on, even though people talk about Man Friday and Robinson Crusoe, and there's clearly going to be a class relationship there. Mm-hmm. They don't look at the way in which capitalism itself is a class system. And you have what actually often determines whether you can become a capitalist is whether you get access to money. Whether you can get whether we, whether it's possible to have money lent to you or get money from a bank and so on, and and that access to money is what enables you to become a capitalist in the first place. And then, of course, when you pass it on for a future generation, you get an inherited class structure, which is the one we're living in these days. But yeah, the Clooney's Ross was a classic instance of that being so extreme that you really had capitalism turning into feudalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, very good. As I say, I'm not sure what we learned. We did get a bit of a history lesson, and we, I think we did on a, you know, highlight a couple of issues with money there. So worth a worthwhile exercise. We don't need to do it again. But thank you, thank you for your time, Steve. Welcome, mate. That was my idea, by the way. I'm not sure uh, Steve was entirely convinced, but there we are, the hypotheticals of Robinson Crusonomics. And uh, that is it for this time on the Debunking Economics podcast. It was a bit of fun, wasn't it? Surely. Uh, and we'll be back again with another one next time. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.